0: All right, so we are jumping straight in. Let's go to John 17, and this has been our, our text for the last five weeks. And so my my plans were to, to go through this a little um, a little bit faster, but there was so much in the first five verses. We spent the first four weeks in the first five verses. And John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And we know Jesus prayed. We know he prayed a lot. Um, constantly, we, we he was... He would uh, disappear to a mountain to pray or he would get on a boat in the middle of the sea of galilee to pray but it was a part of his life but we don't have a whole lot of transcripts on what he was praying about but john 17 we have this incredible 26 verses of of one of the final prayers of jesus it's known as his high priestly prayer it comes right at the end of the upper room discourse where he's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen and and right after this prayer he goes to the garden of gethsemane and the plot to uh uh, you know passion week and the plot for his life and and the cross and everything that begins to happen happens right on the heels of this prayer so it's broken up into three categories the first five verses he prays completely for himself and that's where we spent the last four weeks and incredible things in there and so the next uh part of this this prayer is where jesus begins to pray for his followers and so i'm going to read it in its entirety it's verses six through verse 19. and so jesus has finished up praying for himself again the the theme in this prayer is the glory of god that's his number one concern that's his really his priority he wanted to bring he wanted to make his dad proud he wanted to bring glory to god his father and so that's why we've titled this series glory and then he he begins to pray now for those that are around him his disciples and he says i've revealed you to those whom you gave me verse 6 john 17 out of the world they were yours talking to god his father they were yours but you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word now they know that everything you have given me comes from you for i gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them they knew with a certainty, what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody that knows with certainty that I came from you. This is Jesus speaking to his father. That, and that they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. Now look at this. He, he pinpoints this. Verse 9. This is important. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those that you have given me. For they are yours. And all that I have is yours, and all that you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are going to still be in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by that name that you gave me none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled he's talking about Judas Judas there who's listening to this prayer verse 13 I'm coming to you now but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the trouble. But protect them in that trouble. Protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And last verse, verse 19. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. All right. So that's... That's some powerful stuff there. In this prayer, as Jesus begins to turn his focus to those that are around him, I want to really define who is he talking to. Because we know the disciples are listening, but sometimes we can can take, I mean, it would be easy to take these verses and really just say, well, this is for the disciples. This is for the 12. This is not for us. But I want to to just kind of take your attention to who, who he's really speaking about. You know, in the moment, if we could go back to this time in history, two thousand years ago, this this happened. This prayer was prayed. The disciples, it, it, contextually and historically, this happened, and they were listening to Jesus praying. And they and John wrote down, you know, these twenty-six verses to give us this powerful prayer. But when he addresses the the second half of this prayer, he doesn't necessarily address it to the disciples. He addresses it to the ones who he says the Father has given him. And he defines this by really one thing. The ones that believe that he came from heaven and the ones that have obeyed the word that he brought. And so he's talking to the disciples, but, but, but really what is a disciple? I think a disciple, if there's one thing they all have in common again they came from many different backgrounds fisherman tax collector uh, you know all these different backgrounds all these different uh, different communities of faith that they had come from but they had one thing in common jesus would just walk up on them and say hey I, i know you're fishing peter but drop your nets and follow follow me he did this over and over and over you know, there was no, like, I mean, he would walk straight up to him, and, and, and it was like, undeniably, they couldn't not follow him. <laughs> you know, they left jobs, they left careers, they left families, they left, they left everything to follow Jesus. And as I, as I read the New Testament, and, and, and I'm seeing this theme more and more and more, that Jesus really didn't talk a whole lot about leadership. And I love leadership. I mean, I feel like I'm a, I'm a student of leadership. I'm still learning, and I love to read books about leadership. But you don't see a lot about leadership from Jesus. You see a lot about followership. Because he took these men with all these different backgrounds and really not a whole lot of leadership skills up to that point. They weren't running these great businesses. They weren't, you know, these tycoons, and, and, and you know, they didn't have a lot of success in the world's view but what they were really good at was following, following Jesus. And I'm noticing in my life, the greatest leaders have one thing in common. Before they lead, they follow. And Jesus constantly, over and over, he said, hey, you want to be my, my disciple? Go to, through these six courses, learn how to lead, and then follow me. No, he says, take up your cross and just, come, just, just do your best that you can do to follow after me and my model and what I'm living in front of you. And so followership, I think, is what, is what makes a person a disciple. It's, 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 I've laid my life down, I've laid my will down, and I'm going to follow after this, this Jesus. I'm going to follow after this, this, something has happened to my life, this new, this new thing has come into my life, and now I'm, I'm dedicating my life to that. And the greatest leaders, they all do this. The greatest leaders are, are, are first their followers, And in that day, if we could go back two thousand years ago, it was it was very different than it is today. You know, we go to school, and we, and that's very important to go to school. But they didn't really learn in 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 rows. They learned from you know it was more of a of a a style where you had a mentor, you had a rabbi, you had someone that you followed for years. And, and, and you, it was more of a caste system. If, so it, you learned from that person and that whatever they did, and then eventually they handed it over to you. And, and Jesus, that was the model, that was the approach he took. It wasn't like this, hey, I need you to um, you know, complete these courses. It was just follow me and do it how I do it. <laughs> Paul said the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so there's this, there's this element of followership here. And I love this because it lets me know that Jesus, that God never really expected us to be in charge of our own life. And I think that's where most of the anxiety comes from for me. When I try to control things that I'm not supposed to be trying to control, right? Anybody else? And he says, just, just, just you know, take all that off. I know you've got decisions you need to make. You've got things you need to do. But if you, can just, if you can get this one thing right, <laughs> I'm going to follow after God with all my heart. He says all these other decision, decisions will fall in line. It's, it's this followership. And so within this, this, these few verses, there's, there's three requests. And I believe there's one reason why Jesus is praying this prayer. And it may surprise you. Three requests he makes for his disciples. He makes for us. So if you're trying to follow Jesus, if you're here and you've never been to church in your life and you just decided to check it out, this is for you because you're seeking. If you're here and you've been serving Jesus for 57 years, I think this is for you <laughs> because if, you're, if you are still serving him, you're still trying to follow him. You're still trying to figure this whole thing out, right? You're still trying to, to just learn more. You know, Paul said that I may know him. Like it was the, it was the goal of his life to behold the glory of God and then to, and then to, to, to reflect that glory. And so if that's you, these, these are for you. And this is what Jesus prayed for those who were trying to follow after him. There were three things that were very important to him. Three requests that he made. The first thing that that we see right out of the gate is he prays, Father, protect them. Because he knew he was sending them into dangerous territory. He knew that he was sending them into a world that was light and darkness. He was sending them into a, a battle that has been raging before we ever existed and will continue to rage when we're gone. John Eldred says it like this, that we were born into a world at war, that, that we, you know, a lot of times we, we, want, we want the life to come up at us like a math equation, and we try to solve it, but life comes to us like a story, and we get a chapter at a time, and it's like the more we get into this book that we call our life, the more it begins to make sense, but at the beginning, it makes no sense. At the beginning, it just comes to us, and, and, but we realize, I don't have to convince people that evil exists. I think everybody knows that now. <laughs> I mean, unless, unless you're not watching the news or, or really, you know, unless you're just kind of uh, living in a fairy tale world, I don't, I don't know, you know. You know that there's bad things that happen. There's bad things that happen to us. There's bad things that are happening in the world. And Jesus acknowledged this with his disciples. He says, I'm, I'm pay- praying for your protection because I know that as soon as I send you out, that there's going to be an assignment dispatched against you that serving Jesus is not for the weak. I think serving Jesus is not for the faint at heart. And he knew that it was going to be tough, and he knew that there was going to be things that they would face that they wanted to get out of. He knew that in the next few days and weeks as, as he's praying this prayer, that they would be scattered, that things would happen. Jordan Peterson, I I like to read some of his books. He's more of a philosopher. But in one of his first books, he talks about, he kind of deconstructs the Garden of Eden. And he talks about good and evil. I love it. I think it's it's really, there's a lot of good stuff in there. But one of the things he says is that in every garden, there's a snake. And no matter how perfect we try to make our life and how safe we try to be, there's a snake in every garden. (laughs) And it strikes. And we have felt it. And we know it. And so the first part of this prayer, I think, is is Jesus trying to show us and those that are following him is that not everything is as it seems, that there's more going on underneath, that there really is a battle that is is raging. But I want to give you hope. I want to encourage you because he prays for the disciples. He says, don't worry. You're going to face trouble. Maybe that's why you came this morning, just for me to bless what you're going through right now. You're going to face hard stuff i wish i could be more positive right be positive more positive preacher i'm positive you're going to face hard stuff you're going to face things that are going to make you want to just give up you're going to face things that make no sense it's hard to explain some of the the stuff that goes on in our world it's hard to explain some of the stuff that has happened to people in their life unless you realize that there is evil Unless you realize that there is a war that's raging, and you know that that God is good, and the devil is a liar. Come on, somebody. And his threefold ministry is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. And nothing has changed from the very beginning until now. And this battle has been going on for thousands of years. And we just kind of got born into this narrative and story, and this is where we are. But he wanted his disciples to be clear on that. Because there's a tendency when bad stuff happens to feel like we did it. What did I do wrong? Is God punishing me? Is this because I did something, I made a mistake, or I should have done this, or I should have done that? No, no, sometimes bad things just happen because there's a real bad devil. And there's evil. But thanks be to God, we have a God who not only prayed for us, come on, but is praying for us, for our protection. He says, you know, and I'm glad that he put this in there. He says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I think that's our first tendency when we really get in some trouble and we really have some bad show up on our front door. We just want to pack up and move to the mountains. I'm leaving. You know what I mean? Anybody else ever felt that way? Two of y'all. Okay. I'm just, you know, okay. I'm just, this is, I'm done with this place. I'm done with everything going on in this town. But then what happens is you show up in a new town and you're there. And then, you find, and then you find out that some of that evil that you're fighting in the world is in you too. But he says, I've prayed for your protection. This is powerful, y'all. I've prayed for your protection. Why is this powerful? Because it's not going to get any better. I think, that, I think it's as, as the world gets darker, our light shines brighter. And according to you know, the way that I read it, that's kind of the trajectory of things. But as this begins to happen, the, the, the power and the light and the, the, the presence that you carry, it's going to make a bigger impact. A couple of weeks ago, um, we were, Caitlin and I, we, we found out that the night before somebody had broken into her car at her at house. And it was very, if you've ever had that happen, you know, it's kind of, I didn't even care about the stuff. It was just the fact that somebody would do that, right? I mean, and and not only that, but where the car was—it was really close to the front door and all this stuff. And so we're, you know, I'm, I immediately just felt like icky. You know what I mean? Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Just like somebody without my permission decided they wanted to come and and, and you know do this, do that. And so we called, you know, we called the police, and they're talking about well, there was like 10 or so cars that got hit. Like, so this was happening, and it was kind of, it was like an organized thing that happened, and. And so I did, you know, the right, I feel like I did what I was supposed to do as any husband. I ordered like five more cameras, you know what I'm saying? And so now, like, you can't, even, you can't even blow a whistle in the, in the block over and, are, and not be recorded. But, but, but do you see what, what begins to happen is I, I think we, you know, that the world can, there's a tendency to just to live in a constant state of fear right now. Have you felt that? Just, just, just paranoid all the time. And what I love about this is is Jesus, he says, I've prayed for your protection. That there's nothing that can touch you that I don't know about. There's nothing that can come in the boundaries of your life that I'm not aware of. And And I think the tendency for me is to buy more cameras, right? And to get safer, get some more protection, get some more protocols in place. But at the end of the day, we really can't do enough of that. There comes a point where we have to just say, okay, Lord, i trust you i'm not going to be silly i'm not going to leave my doors unlocked and you know wide open with a sign out front saying come and take it you know like i'm I'm not saying that we live like that i wish we could but you know we can't do that but it's using wisdom but also knowing that god is your protector god is with you and especially when we get this fear-based stuff going on and we watch a lot of fear-based communication and there's a lot of fear-based decisions happening I don't think God's called us to live that way. I think that's why that's the first request that Jesus made. And he wanted his disciples to hear that. He said, I've protected y'all up to this point, but I'm leaving. But there's one that's coming known as the paracletos, right? The Holy Spirit. And he's going to be able to be with all of you at the same time. And, and I want you to hear that. Let that sink into your heart. You have a protector when you realize it or you don't realize it. That is, that is looking after your life. Scripture says it like this, Psalm 125, those who trust in God are like Zion Mountain. Nothing can move it. It's a rock-solid mountain you can always depend on. Mountains encircle Jerusalem just like God encircles his people. Isn't that beautiful? I've never been to Jerusalem. I plan to go one day, but if you look at it on a map, it's literally the way God designed it. There's mountains all around it. It's, it's a protection that only God could design and develop. And you can have a great security system, and you can have an electric fence, and you can have cameras, but I want God protecting me. Come on, somebody, right? I, I want to know at the end of the day when I lay my head down that I could be in enemy territory, but I got a friend, y'all, that sticks closer than a brother, and, and I can trust him with my life. Protection. Proverbs says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And so we're not through with the days where we're going to have to run and be protected in the name of the Lord. I don't think we're through with those days, but it's knowing that we have protection. It's knowing that God is watching out for us. Because at the end of the day, anything can kill you, right? Y'all know that? Anything. Last year, I was getting ready to do a, a funeral, and I was with the family, and we were about to come out, and And I was talking with the funeral director who who had been there for a long time, thirty something years. He had been um, doing that, and so I just asked him. I said, "What's the most? What's like the craziest thing that you've seen?" You know, I asked him that. I tried to, you know, it was nervous. You know, it's just it's just was a lot of a lot was going on, and I just I I wanted to know. I really wanted to know. He said, "You're not going to believe this. It's like last year." He said, "I it was a it was a it was a cobra pilot." two tours to Afghanistan. And I thought for sure, you know, something happened in in, in combat. He said no. He was walking through a parking lot with his phone, and he tripped over a a parking block and fell and broke his neck. And I thought, wow, that's strange. But at the end of the day, you know anything. When it's your time, it's your time. And I think the enemy likes to play with fear and have us always thinking that there's... A devil behind every rock, right? And, and we got to be scared all the time and fearful all the time. But, but Jesus is trying to zone us in on this. He's saying, I, I, I want you to trust your life to the only one who can keep it. And when I thought about that, I, I, when, when he told me that, I, you know, it was almost, you don't want to laugh because it's not funny, it's somber, but you know that God at the end of the day is holding your life in his hands, and to me, that brings comfort. To me, that brings peace because I know I'm a little crazy and I do stupid stuff. You know, like, I mean, I, I, I definitely have that tendency. But to know that we can trust our life to a good God who is faithful. Come on, somebody. To, to know that we can trust our life when he calls us into dangerous places. When he calls us to do dangerous things and he calls us to leave our comfort zone and he calls us to leave what we know is a security. We know we have a God who's protecting us. He prays, protect him, Lord. Keep him safe. The second thing he prays, the second request he makes is he says, keep them together. Keep them in unity. He prays for their unity between this relationship with God and then he prays for unity here and I'm finding that that this unity right here is quite a struggle to keep have you noticed that especially in churches have you ever have you ever noticed have have you ever got into a spat with somebody at a church don't raise your hand I'll never this evangelist came and preached at a church that I was going to about 15 years ago and awesome preacher I'll never forget he he was preaching about unity and how important unity is in in the church and he he said the devil fights the church in two ways primarily the outside from the outside through persecution which we don't have really in this country and from the inside through envy and strife and gossip and bitterness and Jesus brings this up in his final prayer with the disciples listening because he knew about, the, he knew about the, water, the water cooler conversations. He knew that Peter, James, and John, they were fighting about who's going to get the best seat, who's going to be on his right hand, and who's going to be on his left hand. So there was this, this kind of rallying for position and titles, and there was some fighting happening. And, and, and Jesus prayed that they would stay together. Why is that important? A house divided against itself cannot stand. We all know that. In relationships and in business, where there's dysfunction, where there's disunity, there's always dysfunction. When I can't get along with my boss, there's problems. When he can't get along with his boss, there's problems, right? When I can't get along with my spouse, there's problems. When I can't get along with the people in my life, my friends. That I, and so this unity, when there's, when there's unity, there's... Something special begins to happen, specifically within the church. I think that's why that there's so much that happens. There's so many, you know, there's, there's, there's offense, things that just happen to us that just try to drive us out of church, away from the... And it's not so much about the building as it is the people. I don't think it has very little to do with the building. It has everything to do with the relationships. And we need each other. And Jesus knew this with his disciples. He knew that the serpent was going to strike. He knew that what was coming was going to break them apart relationally in some aspects. And he says, I'm praying for unity. I'm praying that y'all can stay together even in persecution. Psalm 133 says it like this. How good and how pleasant it is when people dwell together in unity. Those who trust in God... And live together in unity. It's like the precious oil that poured on the head. Running down the beard from Aaron's beard. Down on the collar of his robe. I want you to picture this. It's like the dew of Hermon. Falling on Mount Zion. For where there's unity. The Lord commands a blessing. Bestows a blessing. Even life forevermore. Now this psalm is a a picture. I believe of the anointing. It's God's spirit. And what begins to happen when we come together. And I think it happens every single week when we come together. It's like God's way of saying, in the Old Testament, this was a picture of how the the, the priest would anoint another high priest. And so they would take about five, like literally five quarts of oil. Y'all know, like, that's a lot of oil. Y'all know if you ever change oil in your car, they would take five quarts of oil and they would pour it over the high priest's head and so when they would anoint him for whatever his task would be whatever unction that he would would be serving in that oil would drip from the top of his head all the way down to the soles of his feet and the picture of it was this that when 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 god's people get together it, it it impacts everything around the the more that we in here can get together as a community the more that the community around us is going to be impacted And I know you've been in churches or you've seen churches or you've heard about churches where it's just fighting and division and strife all the time. And you know that those churches are probably not fulfilling the mission in the greatest capacity that they could. But when we can humble ourselves and and get together, y'all, in unity, and not only that, not only within, but but cross-denominational. That's one of the reasons why I absolutely love what's happening here with the Beach Church. And they welcomed us into this, to their space. It's pretty rare. You don't see that a lot. And what that has done for our church is, and I think for the community, is it's opened up doors that would have never happened if they weren't willing to take a chance. And I think the more that we can partner and the more that we can see this unity in our lives, the more we're going to begin to see God's life. The more we're going to begin to see the anointing, the more we're going to see lives impacted. So when we get together in community, a, a church that is fully anointed has to be fully together, has to be fully connected. And so that's, that's why it's, it's so important, I think, that we are able to have difficult conversations, are able to disagree. That, I think when he's saying perfect unity, when he's, when he's asking for us to be in unity, doesn't mean that we agree on everything. But what it does mean is we're at the table and we're talking we're together. We have each other's back. It's not a us versus them. It's not a for us to win, they have to lose. But it's a, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Come on, somebody. And, and so this unity, when this begins to happen, it's like God begins to pour out his power. When we can cross denominational lines, when we can cross religious lines, when we can cross barriers that maybe we have in our own self, and get together and the disciples this was so important to Jesus that he brought it up in his last prayer and he knew that this was going to be a challenge for them and I think it's still a challenge in the 21st century it's hard to lead a a kindergarten soccer team right you know what I'm saying (laughs) and keep everybody together in unity the parents come on right it's hard to lead anything but when you can get people together in unity revival happens Revival ha- And revival is dead things coming to life. That's revival. I know we have a lot of definitions and different examples of what revival may be, but revival is defined as things that were not alive that begin to come to life. And when we get together, it's, it's powerful. It's amazing what can happen. And so maybe, just maybe, that's why you were hurt so bad in church. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, that, that's why that offense and that bitterness is so hard to get past. Maybe that's why some of the conversations and some of the glances and some of the things, that, it, it, just the uneasiness that can tend to, tend to happen within church is fighting that. Trying to keep us from being able to connect, from, from realizing that we really, really need one another. It's getting real quiet in here. <sighs> But we do it's a body we all need each other Jesus says you're the body of Christ the the foot can't say to the hand I don't need you right the ear can't say to the nose I don't need you it fits together beautifully and it's amazing what begins to happen in the community when that that takes place inside of a church it's God's anointing it's God's power it's God's presence and at the end of the day that's what we really need that's that you know, this is what Jesus is leaving. This is what he's really going after. It's it's not fundamental truths, it's not religion, it's not some statement of faith. He's saying, I want you to experience God's glory, and I want you to give that glory to the world that's that you're in. And I want them to experience that glory. And the more that we can get together, the more that begins to happen. And here's the third one: the third request that he makes. He asked for them to get together in unity. He he asked for their protection. And then he asked for one other thing. He says, Lord, talking to his father, sanctify them. Sanctify them. Set them apart is really what that means. Sanctify them from the world. And and so there's this calling here. There's this this clear indicator that Jesus is saying, and, and and I think he's speaking it to us as well that the, the, the more that we follow him, the less at home we're going to be in this world. And I'm not talking about the world itself as, as much as I'm talking about the system of the world and the way that the world works and the way that the kingdom works. You know, he, he introduced this new idea about this kingdom of God. Nobody knew what it was, but he kept saying the kingdom of this world is kind of the opposite of the kingdom of God. And that the more that we begin to follow Jesus, the more that we're going to see that it's kind of the opposite of the way that the world works. The world says, the more people you have working for you, the more successful you are. Jesus says, the more people you are serving, the more successful you are. The world says, the more stuff you can accumulate, the more successful you are. Jesus says, the more stuff that you can give away, the more successful you are. And there's this thing, this separation that begins to happen and we know that we're, it's the, uh, the, the old-timer said that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're sojourners, right? We're, we're on a journey. We're passing through. And the longer that we stay and the more that we follow, I think, the, the, Jesus, the more we're going to begin to feel a little bit uneasy here. The more that we're going to have treasure on the other side. <laughs> the more that we're going to begin looking towards that heavenly home the more that we're going to begin looking towards what's to come, what's in the future. And it's not really so much about this earth, but it's about what's going to happen afterwards. It's about the life that, that comes after this life. And I think Jesus constantly reminded people of that. He was always turning their heads like, you know, they, they really wanted to focus internally on in what was happening to them, and he would kind of turn their heads outwards and say, no, there's more to it than just what you're facing. There's more to it than what, you're, just, and what you're, you're feeling. And so he prayed for their, their sanctity. He prayed for them to be set apart. He didn't pray for their happiness. He didn't pray for them to get a bunch of stuff. He says, I, he says, I want you, I want the world to know that you are my people. And that's gonna come through making some decisions to separate yourself from things in your life that maybe you couldn't do previously. There's gonna be this call of separation. I think every person has felt that. I think every person, as we begin to follow Christ, we're going to begin to see things in our life that we know we need, we need to probably get rid of that. It's kind of the potter and the clay, right? He picks up the clay. Jeremiah talks about it beautifully. He picks up the clay and then he, he begins to pick out the imperfections. Because he knows that that stuff's got to come out before it gets put in the oven, right? <laughs> so it gets even better. But, but, but he, there is this separation that happens, and I don't want you to see it as bad. I want you to see it as good. That God does that in order so that he can begin to bless our life. That God does that because he, he's like, you know, I think there's this, this thing with influence. It's really hard to influence people that you're exactly like. And he says, I don't want you to be like the world. I want you to influence the world. That the church at its highest capacity, at our highest level, we're not being influenced, we are influencing. And so there's gonna be this call to do things differently. There's gonna be, I'm, I'm sure, some uncomfortable things that begin to happen in your life because you can't do business the way that everybody you see in your marketplace doing business. You don't like cutting corners. You, you, you're not willing to do those things. It's a separation that begins to happen because you want to. You want to bring God glory. You want to see that glory in your life, and He calls us to this. First Peter chapter two, friends. This world, it's not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your own soul. That's pretty good. Live an, ex- an exemplary life in your, in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be one over to God's side and be there to join the celebration when he arrives. Pretty powerful verse there. But there's a call. There's a call to separation. And Now here's the last thing, and this is really, where, really what I wanted to, to give you this morning, is the reason for this prayer. And I don't, and, and it may not be what you thought it was, It was not what I thought it was. So he he makes requests, protect, protect him. Jesus is praying for you and your family right now. In the very end of that verse, you know, verse 21, 22 of John 17, not only did he pray for the disciples, but he's actively praying for us. That brings me comfort. He prayed for your unity. So know you have an advocate that's trying to work the relationships out in your life, the ones that you need, that you have an advocate in God who wants your relationships to be life-giving, that wants your church experience to be life-giving. He prays for their separation, but then he... I want to just read it to you. And it's amazing because there's 26 verses and it's verse 13. It's right in the middle. It's right in the heart of the prayer. And he says, I'm coming to you now, but I'm saying these things while I'm still in the world. And here's the reason. So that you, me and you, may have the full measure of his joy. Joy. Jesus put this prayer, this made it in the Bible, 26 verses. And in the heart of this verse is the reason. He says, I know you're going to have tribulation. I know you're in this world, you're not of it. I know it can feel like a struggle all the time but I want you to have my joy in the middle of all of it. I want you to be able to laugh after you've cried. That was the other question I asked that funeral director. I said, what's the best ones? You're right. What's the best eulogies?" He says it's the ones where they laugh. He says it's the ones where you can't tell if they're laughing or crying. And when I think about joy, when I think about the joy of the Lord, you know, it's very different from happiness. You know, happiness is always rooted in happenstance, what's happening to me right now. So if the weather's great, I'm happy. If it's cloudy, I'm not. If I win the lottery, I'm happy. Come on. <laughs> no, don't, I don't If I don't, I'm not, right? If the business deal goes through, I'm happy. You know, there's happenstance. And so that's a, that's a part of, I think joy will lead to happiness. But joy is, is three-dimensional. Joy is past, present, and future. Joy is, is something that was so important to Jesus. He put it right in the middle of his prayer because he wanted us to have it. He says, I know they're going to go through some stuff. I know they're going to cry some nights. I know they're going to be hurt and they're going to they're face pain. But I want them to have this joy in their life. I want them to know this joy. And i got to be honest, I don't know if I'm the best carrier of that joy some days. I can get kind of melancholy. And I don't think that joy is something that he commands. I think joy is is a byproduct of something that begins to happen in our life when we can see God past, present, and future. Joy is built on the past. It borrows from the future. That joy is more than what's happening to me in the moment. Joy is more than just my problems going away. Joy is more than just the pain that I'm feeling right now being dealt with, whatever that pain may be. But, but there's this joy that reaches beyond the greatest pain and the darkness and the things that we are going to have to experience and face. It, it comes right there in the middle of it and meets us in those places. I think it's what truly separates us from the world. Nehemiah said it like this, it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. It's not knowledge, it's not even, I mean, all that stuff is good, but there's this joy that he offers, and he talks about it five or six times up until this point. He talks about the joy of the Lord. I want you to have my joy, and not just have it, he says, I want it to be full. How's your joy been lately? <laughs> Mine's felt a little low. <laughs> Now I want to give you two quick things and then we're going to pray. I think this has helped me with joy. I think number one, joy builds. It's cultivated by gratitude. What does that mean? I know there's a lot of, thing about, a lot of different teaching, a lot of stuff out there about gratitude. But gratitude is the ability to look in your past and find God's goodness in it. I mean, it's just waking up on the worst day and it's raining and your tire's flat and, the, and, your, and your dog's sick and, and thanking God for your roof. It's just looking back in your life and joy, listen, hear me now, joy is not something that, that's just momentary. Joy is something that is, we build to it. Gratitude lays this foundation in our life. When I think of the goodness of Jesus and all he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah, right? Thank God for saving me. It's built by gratitude, it's built by being able to look back and saying, you know, I didn't choose for that to happen, but somehow, some way, God's gonna get glory out of this. It's Romans 8 28. Somebody, this is for you this morning. We know all things work together for good, all things, good things, bad things, pretty things, ugly things, mistake-looking things, things that we never ever wanted to happen, all things. Work together for good to those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. Can I look at my past and find the goodness of God? You gotta do that work, you've gotta do that work. You, because I know that you can look in your past and you can, you can find the pain. I know you can look in your past and you can find the moments that hurt. But can you connect the dots to those things in the goodness of God? Can you see the, the, the bad and the pain as God setting something up in your life so that he can bring his glory and his goodness into your life? Can you see it, that weeping endures for a night? Come on. But joy is coming in the morning. I'm I'm building this. Joy is something I'm building. Joy is something that happens when I see God's goodness in in my history. And then joy is also something that I could borrow from the future. It's past, present, and future. It's more than just what happened to you right now. It's more than just what happened to you this week. It's past, it's present. future that it's nurtured by anticipation. It's Hebrews 11, it's, it's, it's Jesus getting ready to go to the cross. And he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain, he endured the suffering, he stayed. He didn't quit, he didn't give up. He didn't call a thousand angels to come and get him. He said, no, 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 I've got something I'm anticipating. And it's in this room right here, it's you. The the joy set before him. Can you see joy in your future? Because when you're in a lot of pain, it's hard to see joy in your future. When you had a hard year, and I know everybody in here has, it's really hard to think that this thing's all gonna end with joy. But I came to tell you it is. The ending of your story is gonna be glorious. The ending of your story is gonna be filled with joy and peace in the presence of God. I don't care what has happened up into this moment. That's the promise. That's the joy. That's really what he wanted his disciples to see and experience and know that when when families got broken apart and they lost their jobs and they lost, the whole world didn't respect them, they wanted them gone. He says, I just want you to have this joy that comes from another world. This joy that can turn weeping into dancing. I don't know how it happens. I wish I could give you the formula for joy. I don't think it exists. I think joy is the presence of God. I think joy is Him. I I think joy is is, is when He begins to move and, 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 and it's when I can look back at my life as crazy and hard as it may be and say, you know what? It was good that I was afflicted. It was good that I went through that stuff back there. Job said that. It it was, Job, I mean, he went through a lot, y'all. He lost everything. And God gave him double for his trouble, but in the middle of it, after he had come through it, he was able to look back and say, you know what? I lost some stuff back here, but I gained a whole lot more up here. That's where you're heading. We have to believe this. You have to, I mean, the you experiencing joy right now has a lot to do with how you think your life is going to end and where you're heading. And I want you to know you're heading to a glorious place, a place full of joy where there's no more tears, the streets are paved with gold. It says that God has kept every tear you've ever cried in your life. And he's gonna pour those tears out in a moment. And all this stuff that you're facing right now, you know what the word apocalypse means? It's in the Bible. It feels like we're kind of in an apocalypse sometimes. It means unveiling. It's this, it's it's oftentimes it's the stuff we don't like and want that unveils the joy and the goodness of God. I'm praying for that. Jesus wants you to experience that. That joy. I want you to have it. I want to have it. Some mornings I wish that I could just open up the fridge and drink some joy juice. They don't sell it. Well, maybe they do, but it's it's the wrong kind of joy, y'all, okay? (laughs) Wrong wrong, wrong kind of joy. uh, I mean, John Piper says that every Christian should be, he calls it Christian hedonists, that we should seek to find pleasure and joy in God. There's nothing wrong with seeking pleasure and joy. It's where you're doing it because the world offers pleasure and joy every day. It sells. It's on billboards. It's beeping on your phone every minute somebody's trying to sell you. Pleasure and joy. But only God can say, taste and see (laughs) that the Lord is good. And you may have tasted some other places and ate at some other tables. But when you come to the table of the Lord, you can't go anywhere else because you know it's a joy, it's it's a peace, it's, it's it's something that the world can give you and the world can't take it away. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this, the joy that you offer every Christian, every follower. Not only that, you prayed that we would have this joy and that we would be overflowing with this joy. I pray for that joy in our lives. God, I pray that we would be a a joyful church. I pray that we would be a joyful people. I pray that we can look out, God, and see every silver lining in the gray clouds. I pray that we can look back in our life and see your goodness, and that we can look forward into our future and see that the sun is rising. As dark as it may be, that joy is coming that the story doesn't end here, that as we go deeper and deeper into this and chapter by chapter, it begins to make sense. But I just pray for even in this moment now, C.S. Lewis said he was surprised by joy. That joy is the serious business of heaven. And so God, we've come to do business this morning. Let us receive that joy. Let us have that joy, not just while we're here, but tomorrow morning when we wake up and go to work, let us have that joy. When we wake up and go to school, let us have that joy. When we have that appointment this week that we have been so afraid of, give us joy walking into it. Let us know, God, remind us of your goodness, remind us of your faithfulness, remind us, Lord, that every moment that you're, you're keeping us, you're sustaining us, you're protecting us, You're keeping us together. This isn't something that we have to do on our own. You're keeping us together. You're setting us apart in this world so we can influence the world. God, we take joy in that. We thank you. We give you all the praise. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.